0: many other reasons, right? Well, good morning, church family. Please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Joe and I have been talking for a little while of what we wanted to do during the summer, and where we landed on was a summer in the Psalm and Proverbs. And instantly, Joe responded and said, do you want to start us? And if so, where do you want to start? And I was like, well, that's a lot to decide. Um, But where I landed is a a psalm that I came across uh, several months ago. And uh, it's a really great one, and it kind of sums up the psalms as a whole, right? The psalms are psalms of praise, regardless of situation or circumstance. They are psalms of praise to a great God, right? The one and only God. So the main idea I want you to see today as we walk through Psalm 45, Is that David is praising God for who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised. So, all those three things reign true across the entire psalm, and and David is hitting each one of those you know, who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised. He's hitting each one of those multiple different times and multiple. um, From what I read, this is David's 73rd psalm. His 73rd Psalm, and whether he knew if this was his last one or not, I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting where he lands on his final written psalm or how God chose to order it, right, as David's final psalm in the Psalter, right? The Psalter being another word for the compilation of the psalms as a whole. So it's interesting to see that he lands on... On a topic just talking about how great his God is, right? David has been through a lot in his life, uh, within his family and as king. We've seen great highs in Israel. We've seen great lows due to Israel's sin as a whole and to specifically David's sin, right? But where we finish today is great is the Lord. So let's dive into the text really quick. I'm going to read the entire psalm. It's 21 verses, so hang with me for a second and then we will dive right in. seeing... How David is praising God for who he is, what he's done, and what he has promised. Join me. Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on the wondrous works, I will meditate." They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 8, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him and to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love them, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Pray with me, church. Lord God, we love You. We thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank you that you are great and worthy of all of our praise forever. May your spirit guide us this morning as we seek the true understanding of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we head forward into this psalm, right, great is the Lord. The first thing I want us to see is that the people of God proclaim the person and the works of God. So this is verses 1 through 7, right? David is calling the covenant community of God's people to praise God without ceasing, right? Praise God continually, and with this praise in verses one through seven, we see action over and over and over, right? We don't praise God by just sitting still and doing nothing, right? We praise God, we bless His name, we praise His name, we commend His works, we declare His mighty acts, we meditate on His majesty and wondrous works, we speak of His awesome deeds, we declare His greatness, we pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and we sing aloud of His righteousness. May that be true of any time that we get together, right? Any time that the worship team comes up here and leads us, may we be declaring and speaking and proclaiming how great and wonderful our God is. So that begs the question, right, for us as the church, and kind of for the world as a whole, it will come down to why praise the God of David, right? Why praise him, right? This world offers uh, a lot of other different religions uh, and gods and, and different enticements. So why praise God above all things? Why join with David here in proclaiming his God? Well, I'm so glad that you asked. So no one is like him, right? There is no God like this God. Compare all the other religions of this earth to Christianity, right, Christianity is the only God, right, that is alive, right? Christ is alive. He rose from the dead, and if he did not rise from the dead, then there is nothing unique about this faith, right? Of all things, we're to be pitied, is what Paul says, right? If he did not raise from the grave, then there's no distinction between Christianity and anything else. But if he did, it changes everything. Right? It changes everything about him. He's unlike any other. He's unmatched, right? And the works of God seen throughout history, right? Ultimately, this is a history book. I mean, honestly, um, we see throughout the history of the world, right? <clears throat> God revealing his glorious splendor, verse 5, his might and his greatness and his abundant goodness, revealing it to creation. So a few of the wondrous works of God. Genesis 1-1, God created all things. We could stop there and that's worthy of all praise forever and ever. God created the expanse between the air and the sea. He created the mountains. Those of you that got to go with us to Nepal, we saw Mount Everest, right? We were at 30,000 feet and there's land right there, right? It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. Right? He created the entire world. He created the entire universe, right? Think about this. Mankind, um, you know, my family has a history at NASA, right? Currently, we're trying to get to Mars, right? I think it takes like flying at like 18,000 miles an hour. It takes like nine months or something like that to get to Mars, flying at 18,000 miles an hour. And Mars is just the next planet over, right? Think it, I think it, what, they flew a satellite out to Pluto. It took nine years to get there flying that fast. I mean, the vastness of creation compared to the size of us, right? is ridiculous, right? The wondrous works God created all things. And then Psalm 19:11, all God's creation declares God's glory. Right? We're the only part of God's creation that doesn't at his word just proclaim his greatness. Right? So Psalm 19:1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. His work is over all things. Right? Every other part of creation when God says live, die, go here, do this, right? It obeys, right? We see that throughout Jesus' ministry in the New Testament. Everything obeys at his word. Right? He doesn't have to rub his hands together and you know, do all these chants and whatnot to get it to obey. It just obeys at his word. And we're the only part of his creation that questions whether we should do that or not. So then Job 38. Right, Ethan and Luke have been walking through Job, so I'm sure they'll know what I'm talking about here. Job 38, 4 through 7. Job has gotten to a point of resenting his position, right, resenting his suffering and blaming God as the root of it. So Job 38, four through seven, God asked Job where he was when God laid the foundations of the earth and determined its measurements. Where were you when I made all things, right? If you can do my job so well, right, and organizing and being sovereign over all things in creation, please clothe yourself, right, in in the robe of my majesty and do my job, but if you can't, be quiet. Right? I mean, it's a it's a funny kind of response in Job, but it's so serious. It puts man in his proper place and God where he belongs. Right? And that's ultimately what the fall confused. Right? It confused the separation between between where we belong, right? Just declaring the glory of how great our God is and God where he belongs above all things. Right? And the fall confuses that. So... God created all things, right? All of his creation declares his name, and he looks at man, right, and calls man to recognize this. And then finally, right, it would be an injustice, right, to not mention when we're talking about the wondrous works of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God satisfies his justice and saves sinners at the same time by sending his son as a perfect substitute for sinners, That is possibly the greatest work of all. How could God both satisfy his justice and save sinners at the same time? It makes no sense. So the wondrous works of the Lord, thinking on this, right? And where David has started us right here, saying, proclaim God for who he is. Bless his name, praise him, commend his works, declare his mighty acts. There's action here that the people of God should be doing. Right? This is what the people of God do. Right? If if you're curious about what should I do with my life, you know, and what should I do with my job or my marriage or whatnot, well, um, you should bless God's name and you should praise God's name and you should commend His works to your wife and to your husband and to your kids. Right. That's what the people of God do. So the question I want to ask is this morning: Are we more concerned? And this is really a question I struggled with writing this down because it really um, writing it to myself. Are we more concerned with our well-being? Are we more concerned with our reputation before man? Are we more concerned with our comfort than with God's glory? Right. Because the mission of the church is to declare the glory of God to the ends of the earth. Right. And a lot of that causes us to make sacrifices in our lives that will ultimately make us uncomfortable with our living situation possibly, with our finances, with having to give up certain time here, right? In order to go across the world for a week or you know, for those of you that, you know, that aren't married or don't have as many ties here for a month, for maybe a longer term, right? Joining the church is the church takes the gospel where it has not gone. So as we're called to do these great things, and what I mean by great things is proclaiming God for who he is, not just here, but across the world, we have to ask ourselves, are we more concerned about us than about God receiving all the glory? So what I want you to get from these first seven verses is that the person and character of God is perfect and righteous in all things. God never acts wrongly. Everything that unfolds within all of history, right, within and then down, boil it down to our lives, everything that happens in our lives, God is not wrong in allowing that to happen or doing that. He is always right. And that's where we have to keep him. If we lower that, if we do what Job did, right? At the beginning of Job's suffering, he's looking and he's saying, you know, all of this is crumbling around me, but all I'm going I'm to praise your name because you're worthy, right? And then we fast forward a little bit in Job, and Job gets to a point where he's saying, mm, I'm in this because you did this to me, right? How could you give such a great servant as I am such suffering? Right? And God really puts them in his place because all things that our great God does are right. And then finally, the works of God are awesome and wondrous and mighty and great and abundant in his goodness. Right? God is good to his creation. So next, verses 8 through 13a, what I want us to see is that the people of God proclaim the grace And mercy of God so how does God display his grace and mercy well a short answer to that or is countless ways right we can't really list out the PowerPoint won't won't really list out all the great ways that God displays his grace and mercy but here in Psalm 45 Psalm 145 we see a specific way in verses 8 and 9 right the Lord is gracious and merciful he is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love. So we're going to look at those specifically. Slow to anger. What does that mean, right? We see this some places in the New Testament as well. God calling his people to be slow to anger, right? Quick to listen. So James chapter one. So what does it mean that God is slow to anger? Well, if you go back, and Logan's been telling me something about this. She's reading through the Old Testament. Uh, Um, I think she's in numbers right now, but she's seeing, right, God's people and how they're going, you know, into Egypt, and then delivered, and now they're in the wilderness, and God is leading him, right, according to his covenant with them, God is leading them to what he said he would do for them, right, and they just bicker and complain, and then they're like, oh, we need you, God, and then they bicker and complain, right, over and over, countless times have God's people turned their back on him throughout history countless times. And we see it recently, right? It's not just the Israelites, right? Think about the church, right? The church is trying to be the church and proclaim Christ, right, to one another and to the nations. And then yet sometimes the church as a whole is completely blind to sin, completely blind to such egregious sin in their lives. Let's think about slavery, right? Leaders in the church in the 1800s, Right, They're leading the church, they're trying to serve God, and yet they're persecuting a certain group of people just because of how they look, right? They were leading lives with such great sin and they were completely blind to it, right? I would argue that that's the church in some ways turning their back on God and what he has said in his word, right? We say it here all the time, we hold this at the highest, right? God's word to his church, we hold it the highest we can. But specifically here, right? So countless times God's people have turned back. God's people have turned their back on him throughout history, right? While he still pursued them, right? We don't need to take that out. You know, God God's people turn his back, turn their back on on him and then he continually pursues them, right? And each time this happened, God would have been just and right to punish their sin, right? Because one sin against an infinitely holy God is worth infinite punishment and separation from God. So each time that we sin, God is right and just, just like we saw, what is it, Herod, back in Acts chapter 12, right, You know, he displays his pride and his greatness and how great he thinks of himself before this people that he has so much control over. God judges that sin immediately. Judges it. Strikes him dead. Well, that, and we talked about back in Acts chapter 12, is our depravity, is our sinfulness any less than Herod's? Well, the answer is obviously no, if we read God's Word in Romans chapter 3. So, how... Does he display his grace and his mercy? Well, he is slow to anger. He holds back his judgment of sin. That is out of immense grace to mankind. That he holds back his sin, right? So um, just a few uh, ways and and situations in the, the life of the Israelites where God held back his sin, Exodus 32, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, he receives the law, right? Receives the Ten Commandments, right? God tells him everything. And what do the people do why he's gone? They're impatient, right? They go to Aaron and they say, make us a God, right? We want to worship something. Moses has taken too long. Make us a God. So what do they do? They make this golden calf, right? And they have all these great festivals and and, and worship towards this thing that they made with their hands right instead of a god that delivered them from Egypt with great fire and splitting the seas so they could walk through safely they choose to worship something that's about this big and made of gold right should god or could god have judged them rightly there yes he could have judged them he would have been perfectly right in doing so but he withholds his wrath right he does not judge them in their sin right then first samuel chapter 8 israel desires a king That we want to be like the kingdoms that surround us in this world. Israel desires a king, right? Side note, they had a king, right? They had God himself that had said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. It's nothing that you have done for me. Out of my abundant goodness and grace and mercy, I'm going to bless you, right? I've given you law, right? It's for your good. It's for my glory. I'm going to bless you because of it. But Israel turns their back on God, and they desire an earthly king, so they can be like all the nations that surround them. They turn their back on God. Does God judge this sin then? No, he doesn't. Second Samuel chapter 12, we see the life and the sins of David unfold, right? He sins with Bathsheba, right? Because of this, according to the law at the time, David could have been given the death penalty. Right? That's what he was due. That was the fair, we talk about fairness a lot. That was the fair response to David's sin, the death penalty. Right? And he's told, You're not going to die. Right? God has a greater and larger plan for you and for Israel as a whole. You're not going to God. You're not going to die. God relents, but why? Why? Well, because he is gracious and mercy to his creation, but specifically To his people, Romans 3.25, we see the author talking about in God's grace and mercy, right? At the cross, he has displayed his righteousness, right? He has satisfied himself and offered a way for sinful human beings to come back to God. Why does he do this then? Because he has previously passed over former sins. Right? He has previously passed over former sins, all coming up to the moment where Christ dies for the sin of those that would trust in him. God could not just let the sins for thousands of years before it go unpunished. He had to satisfy himself. Right? We love to think, yes, Christ died for me. And while that's true, it's 100% true, Christ died to satisfy God's wrath. Christ died to satisfy what had been unsatisfied up to that point. It had to be fulfilled. And God, in His grace and in His mercy, has passed over former sin. Right? So we talk about this. Um, grace being, so we have the common grace of God. This is the grace of God that is extended towards all creation. We see there in verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Right? This is not specifically on His people, right? His covenant people that He's brought to Himself. This is over all things and all people, all of His creation. But there's a distinction between common grace and saving grace. Right? There is a specific grace that he extends towards the saints. Josh read this for us a few minutes ago. If you continue going um, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul repeats himself in verse 5 and verse 8, By grace you have been saved. By my grace I have extended to you a way back to me. Right? It's nothing of your own doing so that man can boast, right? Because if we can boast in what we've obtained, right, relationship with God, then we have no need for Christ, right? Christ is not needed if we can attain it, right? Then we just need ourselves, right? And we need to be diligent, and we need to be working really hard so we can attain it, right? That's the miscommunication, or I'll say misunderstanding, In some areas of Christianity, thinking that we can attain the righteousness of Christ, which is what is required to come before a holy God. But he is slow to anger, right? Through his grace and his mercy, he is slow to anger for all of his creation. But he is abounding in steadfast love. This is another way he displays his grace and his mercy. So, abounding in steadfast love. This is a phrasing you'll see all over Scripture. Right? Specifically, Psalm 85, Psalm 86, if you have a few moments this week, go and read both of those psalms. But this phrasing is all over Scripture, and it describes God's loyal and unfailing love. Right? God is loyal to His creation. His love never fails. It's not going to let us down. Think about your life. Okay? What in your life have you put soul trust in, and man, it just lets you down big time. Maybe your job, maybe your family, maybe your kids, yikes, right? Um, Yeah, sorry, it's just funny thinking about my kids. Um, But yes, yes. Um, This is God's loyal and unfailing love right? Specifically, this lends towards God's love towards his people through covenant relationship, right? So this idea of a covenant goes all the way back to Abraham, where God says, I choose you, right? And I'm going to uphold, this was a a one-way covenant with Abraham. I'm going to do this for you, right? Abraham was not required to do anything in return to keep this covenant. God said, I'm going to do this for you. Then we get to The Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant, where they have the law, God still says, I'm going to do this for you, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, right? And as long as you keep my law, I will bless you, right? So that's a two-way covenant. Israel was required and given a law that we ultimately know now they could not keep fully. Right? And that was their misunderstanding for so many hundreds of years. They could not keep the law fully. God wanted them to realize this and be like, man, I can't do this fully. I need the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy of a great God. That was what the picture he wanted them to get. And then coming forward to the covenant that we have in Christ. Right? We read this every, every week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The new covenant is through Christ's blood. right Through his death and resurrection, this is our new covenant. The new modern church through Christ. So God has been completely faithful in all of his covenants to man. He never let man down. He never let his peoples down. And God, God's grace and his mercy extends over all he has made, right? Going back to verse 9. And because of this truth, right? Because of this truth, David calls for all generations of the earth to do what? Calls them to bless the Lord, right? We already talked about this. He's repeating himself a little bit, but that's okay, right? Reiterating something is okay, um, He calls all of creation to bless the Lord, speak of God's glory, His kingdom, and His power, and this will hit kind of hard, or good, I guess, for us as a church, because we've been talking about this for a while, teach our children the mighty deeds of God and His everlasting kingdom, right? So bless the Lord, speak of God's glory, and then, to use the words of Scripture, make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. I guess my concluding statement to this, is this true of us? Are we speaking of God's grace and His mercy, right? We see action after action after action. We know looking at Scripture that faith, our faith that we have, should be a faith of action, right? Not a faith of just keeping to ourselves and, you know, it's so great that God loves us because you know, I'm really great and awesome and nice and whatnot, which is true of me. That's fine, but I'm just joking. Um, But yes, is this true of us? Do we speak of His grace and His mercy? And specifically here, are we doing so in our homes? Right? We have a lot of kids here. Right? Are we raising our kids up by speaking of His greatness, His grace, and His mercy? Finally, in verses 13b through 21, uh, I want us to see that the people of God experience the nearness of God. People of God experience the nearness of God. So verses 13b through 17, we see that God's love and provision, we see God's love and provision towards all he has made, right? Toward all all things. So over these final verses, we're really going to see a distinction between all of his creation and his people. So 13 through 17, God's love and provision towards all he has made. And God expresses this love for all of his creation through restoration. God desires to restore his creation, right? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is full of sin. We look around us and we wonder, gosh, why are these terrible things happening? Well, it's because mankind is sinful, Mankind as a whole in our nature. We hate God, right? We hate Him. But God expresses His love by restoring creation, right? So Jesus' ministry, right, centered around restoration, right? He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. All of these things, these acts of kindness and His grace and His mercy to those around Him, Right, we're, through a, we're to authenticate him as the Messiah. Right, all of them were to point and say, "This is me. I'm the one you've been waiting for." Right, I'm the one that you've been looking for for thousands of years. I'm here. Right, so that they would believe his ultimate message. Right, his ultimate message of hope. In Luke 19:10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is why Christ came. Right? And then Christ hands over this message. He returns to the right hand of the Father. He <clears throat> causes His Spirit to descend on His people, and He hands them over the same mission. Take the gospel where it has not gone, towards all nations. right To all who have never heard it, take His gospel forth. But then in verses 15 and 16 here, we also see God's provision for all creation. He satisfied the needs of every living thing. Right? Just think about that. Everything, everything that exists, right? everything that's living, all things from trees to bugs to us, right? this huge realm of everything that exists in this world. He satisfies the needs of everything. We're going through Luke um, in our community group's time, and we touched on this briefly. Um, it wasn't the direct passage that we studied, but in Luke chapter 12, Right? He's telling those, his disciples, don't be anxious right, about the things that you need in your life. Don't be anxious about that. Why? Right? It's not just a blanket statement. But he says, your father knows that you need these things. Right? Your father provides for the flowers of the field. Your father provides for the birds of the air, knowing that they need things to survive as well. How much more will he provide for you? How much more will he provide for his own children? He knows that you need these things and he will provide them. But then we get into verses 18 through 20. we see a distinction between God's... Um, sorry, excuse, me, um, God's provision towards all of His creation, right? God's love towards all that He has made, and specifically God's saving love and grace towards His covenant people, right? So verse 18, God is near to all who call on Him. God is near to all on call, who call on Him and seek Him. Turn with me to John chapter 4 really quick. Joe and I were looking, going through discipleship basics this week, and we read in John four twenty three: but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is seeking, right? He is out and he's looking for those that will worship him truly in spirit and in truth. God is near to all who call on him and seek truth. That's what Joe mentioned at the start of this. Our goal here is to teach you and us truth, right? That's an interesting discussion and I think kind of a good lead in discussion that we can use with people um, around us in our lives. How do you know what's true? Right? Truth, right, and what we see on the news or social media or whatever it may be, truth is really skewed nowadays. How do we find what is true, completely and fully true? Right? Well, for us as God's people, we know that it's found here in the Word, right? We can rely on this Word because it's inerrant. It's without error, right? And if it's not that, then it's not reliable, if God's word isn't completely true and sufficient for the salvation of sinners, then it's not reliable, right? Then, then we're left here just like wondering in our own ignorance with nothing to guide us, right? But God is near to his people through his word, through his spirit that he has given to us to guide us through this life. God is near to His people who call on Him and seek Him in truth. And then verse 19, God fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. And then He hears and He saves them. We've talked a little bit recently about what fearing the Lord looks like, right? This isn't something where we should just be like terrified of our God, but in some sense it's like a, utmost, most that we can communicate it and do it, respect for a God that is so great and so mighty. And going down to verse 20, a God that will judge the wicked, right? That will happen. He's kept every promise up until this point in history, which means he will fulfill the promise of taking care of his people and judging the wicked, right? God desires to fulfill those who fear Him, and that He hears them and He saves them. Amen to that. So uh, join with me really quick. Romans 10, 13. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's not a ton of wiggle room there. Right? There's not some hidden meaning to what this might mean. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? This is cited in Romans 10 back to Joel chapter 2. It's a promise for mankind as a whole. If you deny yourself, if you take up your cross daily and you follow Jesus, right? All of that, if you call on Him, you will be saved. And then finally, verse 20, God preserves those who love Him. Right? We're we're coming down this this funnel down to a specific um, people of God that He is loving and taking care of compared to the rest of the world. So Romans 8 30, right? Romans 8.30, Paul is talking in a past tense here. Right? If you read the word, all, all you English majors or teachers would freak out because right, it's he's talking in present tense, but he's using past tense. So Paul would have failed his English test right here. But Romans 8:30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also. Glorified. Paul is talking in past tense to give the reader here an understanding of it is certain. It will happen. Right? We don't have to look towards the future and say, what's gonna happen? We know what's gonna happen, how it unfolds in our lives and humanity as a whole. Well, I mean, that's up for God to decide, and He will do that. But God preserves those who loves them, He saves them, right? He gives us His Spirit. He sends us through this life saying, I know you're not going to be perfect. That's why I've given you myself. Right? For our, for our Spirit, right? Not our Spirit. God's Spirit that dwells in us to consistently battle against our flesh that remains. Right? We were talking recently in community groups about, you know, dealing with sin in our lives. Right? Because sin, I think that we, we, we so often don't take our sin seriously. We see it, it's not that big of a deal, right? Or we look at other people and say, hmm, they're doing drugs, right? That's worse than my sin, right? Or whatever it may be, right? But there is no difference between if you were born, right? You came up through your life, you sin one time, right? You sin one time, and then you take over here another person that was born and sinned 20,000 times, right? We are owed the same punishment in both situations. Right? Our sin before a holy God is offensive. But praise God that he lowered himself, sending his son so that we might be given life through Christ's blood and his death on the cross. And if we would just trust in that, he promises, he promises that he will save those who call on his name. Then we get finally down to verse, the end of verse 20. Right? This entire psalm has been just a great proclamation to how great and wonderful God is. Right? But there's a sobering finish to verse 20. Sobering finish to verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love them, but all the wicked he will destroy. Right? We must look at that as a church and realize the urgency. Whenever this world is going to end and Christ is going to return, we do not know. Right? But knowing that God will destroy and judge those in, her, in their sin that are apart from Him, that has to push us out to mission. Right? That has to take us, take us to our families and to our workplaces across the world with the good news of the gospel, knowing that God cannot act against His character and He must judge sin right because it is offensive to him god will destroy the wicked so john chapter 3 verse 18 all right let me turn there really quick john chapter 3 verse 18 we all know john 316 very well i'll start in verse 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in the order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of god Church, we're coming to a point in history, right? Whenever it may occur, we don't know. It may occur in our lifetime. It may not. But we know, coming down to it, regardless of whatever we've done or achieved or how good or bad we think we've been in this life, all of history is pointing towards when Christ returns, right? And when He rightly judges the world. And the question is, when God asked each one of us to give us an account to give an account of our sin, are we going to give an account of our sin and God say, Depart from me? Right? I never knew you, Matthew chapter seven, or are we going to give an account of our sin and God is going to look at us and say, You're not guilty because. You've placed your faith and trust and what I did through my Son. The only way, John 14, the only way that you could come back to me, that is where you've put your faith and your hope and your trust. Right? Enter into heaven with me. Right? That's, what's gonna, that's the uh, finality, or lack of a better word, where all of creation is heading. Yeah. Right? And the question we have to ask ourselves is where do we stand? Right? And the question we have to ask others right, as we go across the world and in our community proclaiming this gospel, we have to ask this question. If all of this is true, which I believe it is, where do we stand? Right? It's a question for us today. It's a question for you. Where do you stand? Because we're not guaranteed another day. Right, We like, we like to put things off and say, you know what, I'm going to take care of this in the future. Right, This is too much for me to deal with right now. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my life right at some point. But right now, I love my sin. Right? My sin makes me feel good. My sin pleases me. But what we're missing is the joy and the satisfaction that is found in the God that David is talking about here in Psalm 145. Right? And because of that, we praise Him because of how good and great that He is. And that's where David finishes, right? Psalm 145, verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. So David says, this is where I land. After all I've experienced in my life, this is where I land. I'm going to praise God's name for all eternity. And then there's an invitation, right? All flesh Join me, right? Join me in praising Him for who He is. Let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever, right? The, the, the word forever really encompasses all things, right? But He says forever and ever, right? Forever and ever may we praise His holy name because He is fully worthy of any praise we could ever give Him. So I guess my final question to us, is do our lives look like this, right? Do we wake up in the morning and do we go to bed at night saying, regardless of what's going on, right? Regardless of situation, regardless of circumstance, regardless of how much my life may be terrible right now today, regardless of all those things, he is still more than worthy of our praise and our blessing and our declaring his greatness and his awesome deeds to all creation. Do our lives look like this? My answer to you is not really, right? Not really. But I think the desire should be for our lives to look like what David is saying here in Psalm 145. Praising God and such a testament to how great and wonderful that he is, regardless of our lives, right? Regardless of what's going on. So I guess my invitation to you today is to reflect on your lives. Do you know God through His Son, Jesus Christ? And if you do, join me this week and the next week and the next week in praising God for who He is. Because church, He will always satisfy. Fully. He satisfies the desires of every living thing. So join me this week um, and for the rest of our lives. Praising Him because, because He is more than worthy of such praise. Pray with me. Lord God, I love you. We love you as your church, and we thank you for how great and wonderful you are. Lord God, we praise you for who you are and your person and your character. You are perfect. Lord God, we praise you for your works. All things that you have done throughout history show your grace and your mercy towards creation as a whole and then specifically towards your people. Lord God, and we praise you for being a great and wonderful God and that you are near to your people. Lord God, we do not have a God that is far from us. We do not have a God that doesn't hear us when we cry out to you in distress or in anxiety or in depression, whatever that may be. You are a God that hears us and you provide and you satisfy. Lord God, and we are so, so easily satisfied by the things of this world we are so easily pleased by things that are not eternal things that do not last may that be the past may that be yesterday and a reflection of our new life in you may we turn to you in a fresh way today and say you are good you are everything that we need and may you be glorified Forever for how great and wonderful and awesome you are. It's in Jesus' name.